back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto, and I'm joined again by my friend and co-host Matt Fox from Boston University. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing well, Haley. It's good to be back and talking about fun stuff with you. How are you, Haley? I'm good, thanks, Matt. I'm enjoying this wintry weather we're having outside. We have about maybe, I don't know, in inches, we have about 15 centimeters of fresh snow. So I'm, I'm looking forward to skiing on the weekend. So this is amazing to me. Like you're having a much snowier than usual winter and we're having a much unsnowy, what's the word? Lack of snow, snowlessness. We have no snow is what I'm trying to say. Snowlessness. We are snow free <laughs> at the moment. Not even on the ground. It's all gone. It's melted. Is it warm or is is it cold, just no snow? So it's been in the 50s and it will be back in the 50s again this weekend. So we had a snowstorm in which it snowed about an inch. And then as it was snowing, the temperature went up to 50 degrees and turned to rain and washed away all the snow. Yeah, the, the winter has been very weird. Yeah, we had a huge amount of snow and then it all melted. And uh, now it's back. Um, this is riveting. I'm sure that our listeners are really enjoying learning about our snow totals. You know, as a Canadian, I feel like I have to represent and, and start a conversation about the weather. It's, it's just kind of what we do. Fair. All right. On to the real topic of this episode. So as you know, we are dedicating the entire second season of our podcast to the new edition, new-ish, I guess, edition of Modern Epidemiology, the fourth edition. Today, we're continuing our conversation on chapter 13 about measurement and measurement error. And we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Patrick Bradshaw from the University of California, Berkeley. Hi, Patrick. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. How much snow do you have, Patrick? I was just going to say that. <laughs> California, sadly, we have no snows. The one thing I really, one of the things I really miss about being in California from North Carolina is in North Carolina, we would, we occasionally get pretty good dusting. But since moving here, the snow is very slim to come by, at least in this part of the, of the state. They do get some up in the mountains, but we're, we're kind of snow free here as well. This is definitely a grass is always greener situation. I'm not sure that, that many folks who live up here would say, I wish it wasn't, you know, 70 degrees and sunny out right now. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually quite cold here in, in, in Northern California right now. It's, and it's been rainy. Luckily, we've had a few days of really nice sunshine. So, but it's been a pretty wet and cold winter so far, most like late December, early January. It's been pretty crazy. We don't enjoy the Southern California weather that often. I guess, but in the summer it gets hot, right? It gets warm about in like September, October is our sort of warm months. It's gotten into the hundreds, but that's super rare. And so usually the highs are in the 80s. It still cools off pretty well at night, which is nice. So even if you do have a warm day, you get some respite. There we go again, down our weather rabbit hole. I just, I just can't <laughs> avoid it. <laughs> but again, back to the episode. So Dr. Bradshaw's research is focused on the identification of factors related to obesity, chronic conditions, and cardiometabolic disorders. But today we have Patrick on the episode to talk to us about measurement and measurement error. So before we get into the, the questions that we have about the chapter, we always like to start off with some fun stuff to get to know our guests a little bit better. So the first question I have for you is, if you could have your own late night talk show, who would you invite as your first guest? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. I don't know. I'll be honest. I got a little bit of a preview of these questions before and I was thinking, and all I could think of was I'd really like to chat with Katherine Hahn. She's such, such a great actress. I'm a huge fan of WandaVision and I'm really looking forward to her new series, the Agatha Harkness series. But uh, she also was just really great in other movies I've seen her in too. She was in the Glass Onion movie and I thought she was just fantastic. And so... Yeah, that was so good. That was so good. Yeah, I just I just love her. And I would like I would love to just chat with her, maybe go out for a drink afterwards and hang, hang out. She seems like she'd be really fun. She seems like she'd be a good person to be friends with. All right. Related to that theme, tell us about one show that you've watched recently and really loved. 
Well, I, I just blew through a rewatch of WandaVision because it is my absolute favorite show ever. It's so good. I love that show so much. It's crazy. But I'm also, I'm right now rewatching Lost. And I think we started last week and we're already almost through two seasons. And those are, these are long seasons of Lost. Like they're 24 episodes. They're not like these little short things that come out these days. So, uh, so but like something more more recent, like that's not, that's not I haven't rewatched a hundred times. I really enjoyed Wednesday on Netflix. And I, again, I blew through that in probably like a day or maybe a day and a half. Oh, that's good to know. I haven't seen it yet. So I would like to watch it. Okay, so Lost, one of the actors in the show shares a name with me, <laughs> yes. Matthew Fox. I thought that was you. I thought that was you. I thought that was your side gig. It was his pre-epi career. Yeah, yeah. But that was my pre-epi career. <laughs> I think I was a doctoral student at the time when Lost came out. So was I. And I would get Skype messages from <laughs> people with names like, you know, Sawyer23 and Kate29 <laughs> saying, are you the real Matthew Fox? And so loved Lost, but did not like the uh, attention that came with it. That's so funny. Yeah, I, I was also in grad school. And it it sort of punctuates my grad school experience. And then it finished up when I was a postdoc. And uh, yeah, Lost has a special place in my heart. Uh, I used to have like watch parties at my house, Chapel Hill. And yeah, it was uh, very fond memories of that show. So every time I watch it, it's, it should not be surprised what's going on. But I still I'm riveted the whole time I'm watching it. I don't want to spoil it, even though you've already seen it. But the, the ending, I don't know. Not so great. Yeah, I agree. But up to the ending was really fantastic. <laughs> Agreed. You know, what's funny about when you think about TV shows from the past about having watch parties, but not just watch parties that you had to wait on a week to week basis. Oh, I know to have the new episode come out and watch it in real time. But real time was on a weekly basis. Trying to explain that to my kids kind of blows their mind. <laughs> the thing is, though, now what happens is you watch you binge an entire season. And then it's a year till you get to the next one and you've already forgotten the plot by then. So then I have to go and reread what happened in the last two seasons. I don't know. I don't like that. I don't like it either. No. The other thing I often say is, oh, I have to tape this episode. And they're like, yeah, mom, same. what are you taping? What are you <laughs> yep. talking about? And yeah, every time. All right. Thanks for, for sharing those answers. It's always nice to get to know epidemiologists as real people who like Netflix, you know, just like everyone else. So this chapter on measurement and measurement error, terrific chapter, so well written in the explanation that, that is presented and in a bunch of different concepts. So we wanted to ask you, I guess, a few clarifying questions, things that weren't clear to us or things that maybe you have experience working on and could help explain a bit better. So I guess the first question that comes to my mind when I think about this topic is the difference between some terms or terminology that is sometimes used interchangeably. The first would be information bias, measurement error, and misclassification. Do you think these terms are synonymous? And how do you describe each of these concepts? That's a great question. And I'll be honest, when I'm teaching these these concepts, I often flub and, and conflate a few of mm -hmm. these things. And so I have to catch myself and step back just to be really precise with the language because they are treated so distinct in the literature and in our textbooks. So to kind of work from the end and on my way back, uh, misclassification, I would say, applies to discrete variables. So whether someone belongs in a particular category or not is sort of misattributed. Measurement error is typically reserved for mismeasured continuous variables. And so this is something like the value should have been you know, 50 years of age, and maybe they reported that they were 48 years or something like that. And so um, in my mind, though, those things really aren't that different. One just happens to be reserved for categorical variables or discrete variables, and one happens to be reserved for continuous variables, but they really reflect the same thing. And so if I had to pick one blanket term for those two topics, I would probably just say everything is measurement error and leave it at that. I really don't like that there's a distinction between misclassification and measurement error. So back to the point of information bias, I think information 
bias is a little bit distinct because it's actually referring to the consequence of when this measurement error has occurred, the consequence on your estimation of the target parameter on whether something's identifiable or not. That would be the distinction I make there. And again, sometimes I'll throw out the word information bias when I really mean error in the measurement of a particular variable, but the bias itself is actually the difference between the truth in your parameter estimate or your measure of association, which you're actually being able to calculate. Yeah, that's really helpful as a distinction. I also find it very confusing why we distinguish so much between misclassification and measurement error. Do you think it's in part because the tools or techniques that we sometimes use to correct for those sources of error are different? I don't know, this is maybe a historical question that isn't really in the chapter, but why do you think that is? Why do we differentiate between those? Yeah, that is a great question. And I suspect there is some historical answer to this that I'm just unaware of. So I have a background in uh, economics as well as statistics before I came to epidemiology. And so I suspect that there's a little bit of difference in how, and so I see some of the things that sort of have percolated up through like the economics literature in terms of their methodologies. And I kind of suspect that there may be something like that going on where misclassification is something that maybe epidemiologists gravitated towards because a lot of the things were categorized, exposures were categorized as exposed or unexposed. And so outcomes also tend to be binary or, or categorical. But then a lot of the other concepts of misclassification have also percolated up in, from the continuous exposures or continuous variables through other fields, I would think. And I think that may be where measurement error sort of, maybe the terminology got established somewhere else for continuous variables, and then it got adopted into the epi sphere. I'm speculating completely at this point. That definitely sounds right to me, because we do think about classification a fair bit when you're talking about categorical variables. And because we don't use continuous variables as much, I suspect that the literature on issues of mismeasured variables came out much more before it showed up in epi. It showed up probably in economics and, and lots of places. And then when it came into epi, we do have so many categorical variables that it, I'm going to guess that it just sort of became a term of art because you were dealing with classification rather than strict measurement. But I'm with you both. I mean, to me, measurement error feels to me like a reasonable catch-all term for both. Yeah, and in trying to draw parallels with confounding, we obviously don't distinguish between approaches to adjust for continuous versus categorical types of confounders mm -hmm. in our analysis, I suppose, aside from stratification and whatnot. But we don't differentiate when we're discussing confounders, whether or not it's a continuous or categorical confounder. So yeah, it's, it's a bit interesting that we, we talk about it in that way. Yeah, that's a great analog, actually, about the confounder. We don't, you know, we don't distinguish the confounders in the way that we seem to do for, for measurement variables. Something that also came up in my mind when, with your answer about the measurement issues producing the bias, the, the information bias, as you mentioned, this is a, a discussion that Matt and I have had on previous episodes, which I'm sure you've listened to, about whether we care about confounding or confounders. The question that Matt always raises, but it's the confounding that we care about. And we don't really care about the confounders. Matt, do you think it's the same parallel here with measurement issues producing the bias? And that's really what we care about? I do, although I, it's interesting. I'd never actually thought about it until you said it that way. But yeah, I mean, because there are certainly examples of cases where you can have a terribly measured variable that leads to no or little information bias. And so if what we care about is, at the end of the day, information bias, the measurement actually isn't a problem there or the mismeasurement. Yeah, I'd never thought of that until Patrick gave his explanation of why those things are all linked. Okay, so the next question we have is a, a, an agree or disagree question. So uh, you can 
agree or disagree with this statement. Misclassification is the biggest source of bias in epidemiological research. Hmm. Can I answer with an it depends or uh, is that allowed on the... Yeah, of course. You just have to give some qualifiers. <laughs> so I would actually say I probably agree with this. So I would, but I would couch that a little bit and say that it probably varies a little bit by discipline. Sure. In some disciplines, measurement error might not be as much of a concern as others. But I think in general, like if, you're, if I'm really going to take a really broad stroke, I would say it probably is the biggest source of bias. It wouldn't surprise me, I will say, if somebody somehow can quantify this and, and rank these sources of bias and they determine that misclassification is the most significant one. I think I agree as well. I think there's a case that can be made for selection bias, but not only is that field specific, but it's also going to be very study specific. But if that is the case, then why do we spend so much time on confounding and so little time on measurement error, both in the way we teach and in grant writing? Yeah, I agree. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's because of, uh, I'm going to be probably a little bit incendiary with this comment, but the infatuation we have with RCTs, to be honest, and not us as the three of us per se, but, but as, a, as, a, as a discipline in health-related research, we hold up RCTs as this gold standard. And the, the thing that we say that's the best thing about them is that they take care of confounding because of the nature of the randomization. And so confounding is not a problem. And so these things are the best because they have no confounding. And so studies that have seen to maybe have some residual confounding are thought to be you know, intrinsically inferior. And I think that that's really doing a disservice to epidemiologic and public health research in general, because I do think, as, I, as we just said, measurement error is probably the bigger threat to most of what we do. I, I mean, that would be my guess as to why we're so infatuated with confounding as a discipline. That's a really good example. And, you know, I was just teaching about the target trial framework this past week in, in my advanced epi class, and students had really terrific questions about it. And we sell it as, you know, we are trying to emulate this target trial in, in all of our observational types of research, but really it only takes care of one of the sources of bias mm -hmm. that we are really concerned about. Depending on how you frame it, I think it can deal with some sources of selection bias. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yes. So that's what I was about to, to say as an add-on. I think it, at baseline in particular, and thinking through very careful eligibility criteria, there are dimensions of selection bias that can be addressed in it, but it completely disregards measurement as a measurement error concept. It talks about time zero and making sure that things align, but doesn't consider measurement error in the mismeasurement of variables. So we've talked a little bit about measurement error and misclassification as different sources of bias. And you mentioned that you think it might be one of the biggest sources of bias in our, our literature. Do you have some favorite examples of misclassification or I guess suppose measurement error that you've come across? I know in your obesity related work, certainly it's a huge problem in the obesity field. So maybe could you talk to us a little bit about how measurement error overlaps with your own work? Absolutely. So as, as you mentioned, in terms of my area, which is a lot about adiposity and cancer survival in particular, BMI is the sort of reigning measure of adiposity that everybody uses, mostly out of convenience. But it's pretty appreciated, though, even by people who use it pretty regularly, it's not really a great measure of adipose tissue in any sort of real meaningful way. And it actually tracks really well with muscle as well. And so now one of the things that started to happen in the realm of cancer survival in terms of looking at body composition is that we have these opportunistic CT scans. And folks have developed ways to actually analyze these existing CT scans. They, they get these CT scans as a matter of just the course of treatment, just to see if the cancer's progressed and so forth. And you can reanalyze these things. They're just sitting somewhere on a computer and you can reanalyze them, put, push them through some software. And you can actually get pretty accurate measures of body composition, at least cross-sectionally. And so you can actually quantify the amount of adiposity and muscle mass on an individual, even cross-sectionally, that track pretty well with overall body composition measures. And so we're actually able now to get better measurements 
of adiposity. They're still not perfect. They're cross-sectional versus whole body and things like that. But now we're actually getting more granularity in what the body composition measures that we really care about are. Because we've always had a hard time interpreting relationships between BMI and survival, especially in cancer patients, because we think, well, what if they're wasting and their muscles are going down and things like that? And so now we're actually able to refine the measurement in a way that we have a whole new variable now that's not really related to BMI per se, but now we're shifting towards variables with better measurement properties in the realm of body composition and cancer survival. And so we're actually getting you know a little more nuanced relationships between these things. So now we're able to tease apart how is muscle tracking with survival versus adiposity? And what are the different dimensions of adiposity? Because what's really cool about these scans is that they can actually distinguish between fat inside the muscle, which is metabolically a, a greater problem than fat that's deposited elsewhere, as well as things like visceral adiposity and subcutaneous adiposity. So you can get at these really interesting measures of adiposity that allow you to sort of really distinguish the biological pathways maybe a little bit better in a way that something super gross like BMI just doesn't allow you to do and never will. So we're actually able to do this. In my mind, this is sort of addressing a measurement error problem where we, where we want to measure adiposity or body composition. We have this crude measure BMI that's been used for years. Now other better measures have been developed that are allowing us to hone in on the relationships we care the most about. So it's been very exciting. I've, I've, had, I've been lucky enough to work with some investigators along these lines. I, I think this is just really fascinating and it's really great. I'm really um, happy that the field is moving in this direction. And I'm curious, in, in your field, do you think that people do a good job of being clear about what it is they were trying to measure and are using, you know, when they use BMI, are using BMI as an imperfect measure of the thing that they really want? Or does the literature really sort of portray it as BMI is the thing we care about and we do a good job of measuring BMI? I mean, I suppose that's probably debatable, but we do a pretty good job of measuring that. And therefore, there's little measurement error. I'm just curious how the field looks at it. I've definitely seen arguments that BMI is easier to measure. And so therefore, it's great because of that. <laughs> but mm -hmm. sure, I think most folks, I think, acknowledge that it doesn't reflect the things that we normally care about. But I think there's a lot of throwing up of people's hands and saying, well, it's the best we can do. And well, it does track without apostasy and it's useful on the population level. I feel like not to get too critical, but I think that there's a lot of excuses made for the use of BMI. I, I think that in some sense, you can only do what you have available at the time. But I think efforts to push towards better measurements are really needed, especially in the field of, of body composition and any outcomes, really. I think there's a lot of excuses made for a lot of the things that we do in, in epidemiology, just because it's what we can do. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious, do people then in your field speculate on the impact of that measurement error or misclassification, depending on how it's used? Oh, sure. I think that, you know, for like, just to pick on BMI a little bit more, I think that folks give it a pass because the argument has always been like it does track with adiposity quite strongly. But so I know we're going to maybe talk about thresholds a little bit later, but you know, there really aren't, aren't any clear thresholds of inflection of disease risk for something like BMI. And so I think that uh, people use it because it's the thing to use for a measure of adiposity rather than really critically evaluating how well it's doing what it's what it should be doing. I think that folks are sort of critical, but then especially if they see a signal, they give it a pass. They say, oh, well, if there's an increased risk with greater BMI, then this must be doing what I think it's doing because this is what I wanted to find. So there is like a cognitive bias going on there, I think, with, with some of these things. And yeah, that's one of the, the sort of issues that I think needs to be addressed in general. And again, I'm picking on BMI, but I think this pertains to a lot of different exposures is that when we find signals, we are less likely to criticize them. I know this is something that I've read in some of the other literature as well. And so it's one of the things I teach in my in my classes as well. And it's just sort of like, you know, be critical of the things that you're finding and really see if you can do better in some ways. Yeah, I, just one clarification before I ask the next 
next question. When you say cross-section of your skin, you mean cross-section of an individual's body. Oh, yes. Not a, not a cross-sectional measurement. I, I get it. Sometimes I get stuck in my own lingo. Yeah. So, so just for the, the listeners, so I'm, I'm talking about these CT scans, they, they have cross-sectional area. Like a slice. A slice, exactly. A slice of someone's body composition versus volumetric measures. Although some of these, some technologies emerging that's allowing us to do this, but we're not quite there yet with the volumetric measures. And so ideally, that's really what we would like to know is the volume of adiposity, the volume of muscle in someone. Uh, yeah. Uh, my next question is about this issue you mentioned about is BMI measuring what people think it's measuring in, in large part, probably not. But there's a nice section in the textbook that talks about construct validity. And, and I think this is a topic that we don't talk about enough as epidemiologists. Is my measure measuring what I think it's measuring? Aside from the measurement error and misclassification type issue, this topic is, is often discussed in areas like psychology, as an example. I remember taking classes and learning of about construct validity. But can you talk a little bit about this issue of construct validity? I, is it a qualitative construct that fits under that information bias umbrella? And how do we kind of reconcile the quantitative with the qualitative? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think that we talk about that enough in epidemiology, to be honest. And, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to have a particularly informed opinion on it. But I think that a lot of times we do things where we should acknowledge that we're trying to measure a construct of something, but we're not able to. So we have some proxy. I think is the sort of way I would maybe characterize it. And so another sort of just kind of rely on something else I do besides, I mean, the BMI as being a, con, a, a proxy for the construct of obesity or ad, excess adiposity is one thing. But I think in, in nutritional epidemiology in general, you know, we use food frequency questionnaires to measure the construct of, an, of the overall or typical diet. But honestly, even the idea of what a typical diet is, it isn't really well grounded, I think, because it changes over time. And even if the FFQ can really accurately get a measurement at a particular point in time, diet is so dynamic that the overall diet, are you thinking about that as like the average over a year of the types of foods that you eat? I think that the construct of these of some of these things really should be scrutinized a little bit more than we do it in epidemiology. And I think the default is, well, again, FFQs are semi-convenient. They're a little bit burdensome, but they're, they're like what we do. So we'll, we'll you know throw out a bunch of FFQs at people and then grab the data and then just analyze it without really thinking about like, what does this mean? In terms of cancer survival too, you know, one sort of dimension of measurement error that I don't know really gets appreciated as much is a measurement error and the fact that you're getting oftentimes one temporal evaluation of a variable of something that is quite dynamic. And so even like something like adiposity, like these measures of CT scan-based adiposity, you know, oftentimes we get these at around the time of diagnosis. And in reality, we want to know how the changes in these things operate and when these things change and how often they change is something. And so we often basically assign the exposure that happened at or near diagnosis in as a measure of the things we're sort of relating to future survival. But in reality, these things are quite dynamic. And that's another source of measurement error in the fact that we're assigning an inherently static value of something to something that's really, really changing over time. And so I think that's also something that we don't really talk a lot about in epidemiology. And I think that it would be nice to incorporate more of that in our education. Yeah, the example I always use, because it's something that everyone in the field is familiar with, is, is teaching evaluations. You know, we want to assess the quality of an instructor. And so we throw together a bunch of questions and ask students what they thought of the class. And we've decided that that actually is a measure of the quality of the education 
when in fact it's probably a measure of you know how easy the class was you know how much the instructor was likable a lot of things that are not actually the construct that we're trying to measure but as you said that you know made me realize okay so we're, we're talking about there can be errors in whatever the instrument that we're using is that's trying to actually measure something there can be data entry errors there can be these construct validity problems and then as you say there are these we're measuring the right thing but at the wrong time or the wrong form of it and i'm sure there's a number of other ways that we get it wrong when you start to add it all up it sort of becomes like how could we ever think that anything any variable that we're looking at is perfect we're so far from perfect the question is when is good enough and i i I don't know how we answer that yeah, I, I totally agree. One of the things I'm really starting to appreciate more and more as I get older is the the value of bias analysis. Interrogate these things, at least, you know, it's not totally comprehensive and that it can't accommodate every possible version of bias that goes on. But I think that applying bias analysis more regularly in a really solid way, I think it should be the standard. It should be almost expected in every paper because of all of these issues. I think maybe, you know, obviously there's probably dozens of sources of bias in any particular analysis, but I think that picking a few important ones and really like how if we uh, sort of stress tested our analysis based on some reasonable assumptions, what would it look like? I think that would help a lot in terms of Epi's credibility as well as just in terms of interpreting how likely these results you know were. So obviously you're not going to get any argument from me on that one. <laughs> but as you said, I mean, I think even to the extent that if you just thought about the fact that let's say it had no impact on the actual estimates, that there was no actual bias, there probably is, but let's just pretend that there isn't. Just the fact that you know these things are measured poorly should probably probably make you less certain in your results. So just sort of thinking about expanding intervals to account for the fact that we have imperfect measure is something that we don't do. We certainly don't incentivize anybody to be more honest about the uncertainty. And and I, I think that is part of the reason why we get into problems with drawing correct inferences. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. And I think it would also help with the constant epidemiology problem of different investigators finding different results, because I think oftentimes that is due to different measurement. You're measuring something different, therefore, your result is something different. And there's no unexplained novel risk factors. There's no special aspect of this target population or or sample. You're just measuring something different and getting a different answer. And that's often, I think, overlooked. Smoking as a construct is such a broad topic. How much, how many years, how often, intensity, all these kinds of things that just saying smoking or drinking or healthy diet or whatever is, is completely meaningless functionally when you're doing an analysis. I don't know what a healthy diet looks like as a variable. Exactly. All right. So, so that that leads into uh, the next question I have about misclassification, which Matt and I have often talked about this as a somewhat self-inflicted problem. You know, you are creating categories from something that is continuous. And I guess there are different reasons for why people do this. But one of the justifications that I often hear is that it's easier to interpret. And so your results may be more meaningful, potentially, because, you know, you can share them with an, a broader audience rather than explaining, you know, this beta coefficient corresponds to one unit increase, etc. So how do you reconcile potentially introducing some types of bias related to misclassification with the utility of a continuous measure? And just to clarify, when when we say that, obviously, there are things that are by nature discrete, and we're not turning something continuous into something discrete. Of course. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. But in the cases where things are continuous, and we categorize them, it does seem like there's the potential there for additional measurement error. So we could get the continuous measure wrong, and then get it wrong by categorizing. Mm 
Yeah, this is a great question. And honestly, the sort of standard of practice in epidemiology to categorize everything is something I've struggled with from day one. Coming from like, yeah, economics and statistics, it, like nothing's ever categorized there. I mean, honestly, in economics, there are probably things that should be categorized that aren't. <laughs> Just I'm, I'm being a little bit broad there with that statement. But it was really shocking to me to see epidemiologists would take a variable that was continuous and not leave it alone and sort of you know beat it until it looked in categories that were convenient. And this argument for convenience's sake never made sense to me. Yeah, so I still struggle with that. And even when I read textbooks and I see very, you know, they present examples where things were, were categorized, I cringe a little bit. But that said, I think I think in general it's unnecessary to categorize things just for the sake of categorizing them. But I think categorization can be viewed through the lens of misclassification. But I think that I would make a distinction between the information loss that's a result from categorization of an inherently continuous variable a little bit differently than mis- misclassification per se. So if you have a perfectly measured continuous variable, I don't know what this unicorn would look like, but let's just say we have one, uh, maybe age. And you categorize it as above or below some certain threshold, you know, you could do that perfectly. In in that sense, that variable is not misclassified. And so the consequences of that would still fall under the definition of what we talked about before is information bias. I don't know that I would call it misclassification exactly. It's more of like a misspecification of the variable, misrepresentation of a perfectly measured variable. So, and again, I, don't, I know that there's a whole literature, and especially in Epi, about like the dangers of classifying things, but I don't know that it's framed as like a member of one of these three canonical sources of bias, information bias, selection bias, confounding. And so I would like to know, like, can we fit it in there? Or maybe is there another form of bias that we should be aware of in, in epidemiology, which is messing with your variables too much? That sounds like a good technical term, messing with your variables. <laughs> I'm going to propose that, right? You, you you heard it here, folks, on the on the serious epidemiology podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, would that fit under model misspecification? Too? I think it does. Yeah, I think so. But I think that for me, it's like maybe even a little bit broader than a model specific problem. Like it's just a, it's a conceptual problem. It's what do you expect this variable to represent? There's no inherent high or low age level, really. That's not sort of context dependent. And so, yeah, I think that it's, it is model misspecification if you're going to do it in the modeling context. But then when you think, step back and think, what does this variable mean? Misclassification is also not really analysis dependent per se. Misclassification is before I even do the analysis, this variable is messed up. And so it's the same sort of a thing. Like I'm doing something else, this variable to make it not represent a useful thing, but it's different than it being error prone, it's that I've aggregated it in a weird way. And so to me, like the distinction is kind of important. But but I'm actually glad that you brought this up because this is actually super relevant to misclassification in that I've actually heard an argument that categorizing an inherently error prone continuous variable reduces the likelihood of misclassification. So like bending things into quartiles or something like that. And honestly, I freeze when I hear this because I'm like, I need to not say what I'm really thinking in my head because <laughs> this is just bananas. Like when people say this, I just want to be like, what is the rationale for, for saying this. You're taking something that's inherently error prone and then you're losing more information. It inherently doesn't have the information you think it does, but then now I'm going to say, I'm not going to make it have less information and say now, now it's not as classified as badly. I don't know. I just don't follow that logic. That's another reason why I don't, I, I don't like misclassification because I think that thinking continuous variable has a measurement error, but maybe the measurement error is very systematic. So everybody's off by like five units. So that will track in a regression model in a way that probably won't really affect the parameter estimate on that variable. So if it's a mismeasured inherently continuous variable and it's off sort of consistently by everybody's off by five units, then the, the slope term on your regression model shouldn't change. It might change the intercept term on your regression model, but it's not going to really change the slope coefficient on that on that variable. But if you take that variable now and you start to bin it, now some people, now because people are sort of shifted along the continuum, you're going to be binning people into like different threshold, across different thresholds in ways that they probably wouldn't have experienced before. So it seems like that would be implying some sort of a bias could be going on. So I think that actually could be exacerbating bias rather than alleviating 
gene bias. You could be actually inducing misclassification rather than remediating it, I guess is my point. For sure. We haven't talked about, you know, types of misclassification, differential versus non-differential, but there's a great paper showing that when you have non-differential misclassification of a continuous variable, I don't know, non-differential would be an exact case, but it's a random measurement error. When you categorize it, you can turn that into differential misclassification. And so now even the direction of the bias is unpredictable. So yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. So that, let's talk about differential and non-differential and dependent and non-dependent error. So the textbook says that classification errors that depend on actual values of other variables is called differential misclassification, whereas classification that depends on the error in measuring or classifying other variables is called dependent error. Do you find this categorization or distinction helpful when you're thinking through different sources of error? I actually really do, uh, especially as the way that the book has laid it out, which I think is really nice. They sort of distinguish differential misclassification, I think, as you mentioned, as a sort of a deterministic relationship that the true values of some variable are determining the observed values of another variable. And so differential misclassification has that sort of almost determinism built into it. But the dependent error piece actually refers to the residuals in the errors between two variables are correlated together. And I think that that is some implications when you start sketching out your causal diagrams and your DAGs. You know, I was uh, going through the chapter in, in advance of our talk today, and, and really in figure 13.1, I really I really love that figure in particular in this chapter because it actually delineates this really clearly with causal diagrams. I mean, this is one situation where I think causal diagrams are, are absolutely invaluable to help us understand this. And th these sort of U variables that are encoded in these diagrams, like these are the errors, or you can sort of broadly think of them as like residuals, these other things that are determining what these other variables are. And for dependent errors, basically the error that's affecting or the residual that's affecting two variables has something in common. It's a it's correlated in some way. And so in the bottom right panel of I think that figure, it's basically showing that like there's a common U that's common to like two of the variables that are being mismeasured. And that's really what's driving part of the error there. But then you can also have part of the misclassification due to the true values of some of one of the other variables like feeding into the observed values as well. And so I think that this distinction is is actually really good. And something I probably didn't appreciate until well after grad school, and maybe I was just tuning out on the day we covered this, but I think this is something we should emphasize a little bit more. And I think encoding these unobserved variables and thinking about them as like these errors that could be independent in some situations and not in others. But again, this is about being honest with our analyses. And again, these are things that you could probably weave into a model in a bias analysis framework. And so I think it's a really important distinction. And it's something that I try to think about when I'm thinking about like what's causing these things. Is there a source of correlated error? I would say that, that I probably would have encoded common source of error a little bit differently. There could be, because they're correlated, it doesn't mean it's the same error going into both. It means there's some correlated component going into both. So I might've had some U higher up that's pointing into a UX and a UA, and then the UX and the UA are pointing into their respective measurements. But the effect is the same in the DAG. So I'm being a little bit overly critical of that DAG. I think that like, again, stepping back and sort of thinking about like, what does the grand DAG look like to even like expand that a little bit more. And these things can illuminate other sources of bias you wouldn't have otherwise thought about. So that's my long-winded answer to that question. I have to say, I agree with this as well. To me, these are incredibly useful and they're different axes of errors. You know, we're talking about differential versus non-differential 
differential. To me, we're thinking about one variable and measurement of that variable in relation to another, but we're not worried about, at least at the moment, the mismeasurement of that second variable. And there, it helps us think about ways in which the direction of, of any potential bias might occur. So with non-differential, even though there are tons of exceptions, you know, with non-differential misclassification of a dichotomous variable, the expectation is biased towards the null, whereas with differential, it's not predictable. It can be predicted in specific cases, but it's not in general. When it comes to dependent, we're really talking about the mismeasurement of two different variables. And because the error then is correlated, you can get really strong bias with very small amounts of that dependency. To me, differential and non-differential, those are problems we can live with and really think about maybe in a bias analysis context or reason about what the direction of the bias might be. When it comes to dependent, I just feel like all bets are off and I'm going to struggle to have a lot of faith in any study in which the exposure and the outcome, let's say, have a common source of error. So to make it more concrete, so if we're talking about if you're getting your exposure and your outcome, both through self-report, the error in those two variables are going to be correlated because person giving the information has the same biases that they're introducing. And it, it just seems to me that you're in a world of very unreliable information at that point. Yeah, totally. Matt, would the same type of bias exist in a medical records context where you're using billing codes for exposure and outcome? Potentially, but typically in those cases, it's not going to be the same person doing the coding for all of the information. So you're not necessarily getting all of one person's bias filtering into all of the codes. On the other hand, if medical practices have particular ways in which they do the coding that would lead to some predictable sources of bias in lots of different variables, then yes. I mean, it's been pointed out that this can also occur even in lab measurements when if you draw blood for two different lab measures and there's problems with the way the blood is drawn or the sample was corrupted in some way, doing multiple different tests, they're both going to suffer from the same source of bias. So it could occur in lots of different ways, but I I do think self-report is probably the biggest one. In terms of fixing or addressing this type of dependent error, what on earth can be done about it? Prevent it. Prevent it. <laughs> this is one of those things I feel like you cannot solve this in the analysis phase. So if you know, we get so many of our exposures through self-report. So if you know that, then get your outcome not through self-report. That's probably pretty common in epidemiology. I don't think we often, except in cross-sectional surveys where I, you know we're not doing a lot of causal inference epidemiology from cross-sectional surveys. But in epidemiology, we do often get exposures and confounders through self-report. And there you run the risk of potential dependent errors there. And there, again, I think the best thing you can do is think about what are your important confounders and don't get those through the self-report if you're going to get the exposure through the self-report. So basically you're in trouble if you're using self-report all the way through. I think so. All right. Something that you learn very early as a phrase in your epidemiologic training often is that non-differential misclassification leads to bias towards the null. And then, you know, in your advanced epi classes, they usually add on the non-differential misclassification of binary variables leads to bias towards the null. And it's frustrating because it leads to this pervasive perspective that non-differential misclassification, we shouldn't worry about it. Oh, it's just a bias towards null. Do you see that in the literature, Patrick? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that folks look for arguments for non-differential misclassification because then the bias towards the null kind of gives them a pass. And so especially if they see a significant effect, they're like, oh, well, it's probably even bigger than what I saw because this this is probably biased towards the null. But and again, I think this is where bias analysis, I think, is so useful because then it really makes you honest about, you know, when you have to sit down and encode your thoughts, sometimes it's shocking when you sort of think about things and you write them down, you're like, oh, this probably wasn't really non-differential or maybe 
reduces differential, but maybe in a way that didn't really matter so much. Like there's, there are a lot of examples where differential misclassification either doesn't make a difference or it also biases you towards the null. And so I think that we've kind of gotten into a habit as a discipline. I mean, you can probably pick up any one of our major journals and probably find something in, in, in several discussion sections that has this sort of an argument. And I'll be, I'll be completely honest with transparency. I'm sure I've used this before in my papers as well. So yeah, we, we all, I see hand, hands up all around. So, but I think that this has just sort of been something that until recently, we haven't really appreciated that we can actually do a really good job of interrogating this. And this is one of the things that I'm really trying to instill in my classes is that bias analysis should be part of the standard approach to what we do, because it allows us to actually be honest about these sorts of things. And if you're if you're going to make the argument that non-differential misclassification bias towards the null, then show it and show how much it would have biased you towards the null. Maybe it didn't bias you that much towards the null. Maybe it really did bias you towards the null, and then we're understating an effect. Understating an effect is also, it's a problem. Just because we're showing that it's null, that could be really bad for public health, <laughs> not identifying things. And so I, I think that there's definite tendency towards trying to get a pass for things because because we're, everybody is sort of to use a, a term that I think Tim Lash has used before, like null, anchored to the null. Everybody seems to be anchored towards the null effect being the thing that we're trying to escape from. And if we don't escape from it, it's probably okay. I, I don't know if I answered your question thoroughly or not. No. So this idea of how much matters, I use this example all the time and I've probably said it before in this program, but if you looked at the early data on HPV and cervical cancer, they found, you know, odds ratios of two or three, which is bad. That would set real, you know, cause for concern and we should do something about that. But when the PCR tests came along and got better and better at being able to detect HPV, the odds ratios went up to like 400. That's a public health emergency. Yeah. You know, so how much bias towards the null there is matters. But it does seem to me that we finish our MPH training and we get handed our non-differential misclassification glasses and we put them on and that's all we can see from there on out because we know that if put that into a discussion section, it's going to work better than saying differential misclassification and you know, maybe there was bias towards the null or maybe there was bias away from the null. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can interrogate that too, as you point out, but we don't do it very often. So yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. I, one of the things that I really started leaning on a little bit more in my classes is teaching. There's this really great paper by Rudolph et al. in AJE back in 2020 or 2021. I just covered it yesterday in class where you can actually sort of impose some misclassification on some simulated data and see what it does to your measure of association. And you know, I went through a few examples where we have differential, non-differential, differential with respect to scenarios. And I kind of showed that like sometimes the effects are are bad and sometimes there's no problem at all. Sometimes they go in the, the opposite direction that you expect them to go into. And I can sort of see when I teach this stuff, you see a wave of understanding wash over the students. It's really illuminating to see these examples. And I think that the more tools like this we even incorporate into our teaching, the better. Because I think some of these things are so, so, so hard to teach and to learn and to even grasp in basic sort of tabular formats that we present things in oftentimes. And with these rules of thumb and sort of like, not only when do these rules of thumb don't apply, but to what extent do they not apply? That's the, that to me is the bigger thing. We're a quantitative discipline. We should be able to quantify if it's biased towards the null, what exactly do we mean by bias towards the null? Just because it's nudged in that direction doesn't mean that it's, it's a good thing or it doesn't mean that it's even like significantly biased towards the null. So I, I really bristle around rules of thumb in general. And I think that the more tools that we can sort of pull out of our toolboxes to help understand and teach these things, I'm kind of coming at this from an education, an educator standpoint too, is the tools we can provide our students to help them understand these things in perpetuity and not have to rely on rules of thumb. Because one of the things I, I sort of emphasized was that you know when they're out in, in the real world or when they're doing their dissertations or whatever, they're going to come up with scenarios where they're unsure about what's going on because they have different confounding structures or something like that that they're going to be assuming. And to be able to, to knock off a simulation study that will let them know what the expected sort of direction of the bias is, I think it's really, really important for their education. And instead of just learning 
rules of thumb that can betray you sometimes, quite frankly. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And, and seeing those quantitative examples are really what you need to understand these sources of bias. And we all dedicate so much time to understanding other sources of bias that I think I agree with you completely that measurement error needs its its quantitative foundations as well for you to understand it beyond just the, oh, it's, it's towards the null. Okay, well, with that, Patrick, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us. This was really helpful. I learned a lot, and I really enjoyed talking to you. So, so thanks for joining us. I did too. Thank you for having me. This was such an honor to be a part of this. And so, yeah, look forward to seeing both of you at SCR meeting in the future. Absolutely. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June in Portland. It'll also give you access to the SCR libraries, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology, Casual Infants. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one. As a reminder, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our episode next month. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.